as we look to the Lord now in prayer. And Father, we're thanking you for who you are and thanking you for being the sovereign one who sent Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. You know our needs. You know exactly what was necessary. We entered into this world sinful by nature and the remedy is found at the cross of Jesus Christ where the great physician came and died in our place for our sins. We're praying now, Father, in the second of the services that you will continue to work mightily. We're going to explore your word as you have phrased it, as you've penned it. We're asking, Father, that you speak to our hearts very uniquely, distinctly, and personally. So, Father, in these moments to come are important. Warm these hearts. Engage our minds. Shape our wills. As again now, Father, we've come here, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a revival. At Asbury College, Howard Aki, who was a professor there, says the lights in Hughes Auditorium still have not been turned out. Even now, months later, a few people gather each evening to pray, to witness, to rejoice together. And often these meetings last into the midnight hours, with visitors not infrequently being helped on to God. And also during most hours of the day, someone may still be seen entering the chapel and they kneel to pray for a few moments, then leave. Others just sit and they stare at the altar, so rife with incredibly precious memories. And if one looks closely, well, the tears may be coursing down their cheeks. Perhaps those tears express more eloquently than words what had happened. There's no human vocabulary that can capture the full dimension of one divine moment. In some ways, it seems almost like a dream, yet it happened. We saw it with our eyes, in a way impossible to describe. God was in our midst. And those of us who were there can never look upon the things of this world quite the same way again. What's being described by that professor was a revival that took place on that campus. But all the revivals throughout history find their pivotal connecting point in that ultimate revival being described in Acts chapter 2 on that day of Pentecost. God had dramatically broken in, interrupted their lives, and seized their attention. And just as, as we noted a couple weeks ago with the matter of the second member of the Trinity, how God used the natural forces of the environment to capture the attention of the people, there was the darkening of the sky during that noon hour when Jesus was on that cross dying for our sins. So now with this third member of the Trinity, there is this movement like a rush of the wind, you see, as the apostles began to speak in other languages. 
and they were communicating the good news of Jesus Christ at a pivotal point when people from around the globe had converged upon Jerusalem, the epicenter, in order to be able to involve themselves in religious ceremony known as Pentecost. Now, just as God used Passover in the means by which people were coming from all around to be able to ponder the significance of Christ's death on the cross, so now with Pentecost, the same thing as people with throngs make their way into Jerusalem and they're pondering, what is this all about? And now the apostles are about to explain it. And you and I need to be able to understand it. So what I want to do with you this morning, with that idea again that Pentecost was the ultimate revival in all of history, (coughs) is to draw two significant reflection points that I see here that relate directly to what's being described. And the first comes out of 37 down through verse 41. As we consider here together the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, let's begin, (coughs) let's reflect upon our conversion to Jesus Christ. Which means then that you have repented of sin, you've put faith and trust exclusively, not in your works, not in your efforts, but in Jesus Christ's finished work, him alone. Now, Peter has just gotten done explaining the significance of what's occurred here as languages had miraculously broken out and communicated the gospel. The word for The languages, in fact, was the Greek word dialectos, that we get the word dialect from. In other words, God was so concerned with communicating the gospel that he communicated via these fishermen in dialects, manners in which the foreign people who had come into Jerusalem would be able to understand. They're taken aback. They even got the accents down well. And so as Peter now wrapped up his incredible presentation of what Jesus Christ had done. In verse 36, he said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, speaking of Jesus, both Lord and Christ. And then I have double bracketed the next phrase. This Jesus, whom you crucified. See how specific he is about Christ? This Jesus as compared to anybody else that goes by that name. The third time in his presentation, his appeal, that he has used the phrase, this Jesus. For example, earlier, and we found in verse 22, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Then you made up to verse 32, where we found out this Jesus, God raised up, and we are all his witnesses. So now in his final appeal, where God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, and notice how personalized this is. He connects them to Jesus. And when you and I are deeply concerned with being able to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ, we are continuously being specific, number one, and personal, number two, and we're connecting people to Jesus as he has done this Jesus. And what happens? I always love the word now. Bible because it's very contemporary. It's in the now. Not later. Now. Now when they heard this, mark the next phrase, they were cut to the heart. Now what fascinates me is that in the Greek, the word cut 
came from a word to describe the puncture that is delivered by a spear to the heart. Those that had been observant of the Roman soldiers in that time period know their capacity, you see, to be able in warfare to cut to the heart. What he is now saying, this physician is, this great cardiologist, Luke, is that this cuts to the heart of the matter, this whole matter of Jesus Christ who died on the cross to save us from our sins, that word there, cut or pierced. In New England, I was walking through some tall grass as the young congregation was trying to figure out where to be able to purchase land and begin the construction of phase one of what would turn into a three-phase building program. And as I was walking in the tall grass, I stumbled over a monument in the grass, and I pushed the grass aside, and it was a monument to David Brainerd, missionary to the Indians, known for his extraordinary journal, mentored, discipled by Jonathan Edwards. And dated August 6th, 1745, he wrote in his experience with the Indians where he'd been sharing the gospel. It was surprising to see how their hearts seemed to be pierced with the tender and melting invitations of the gospel. There is something extraordinarily heartfelt when the gospel penetrates the heart of an individual. So now Luke, in his own manner of communicating this whole issue of the gospel, says in their response, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. All these people from all these various language groups, they're in one place in Jerusalem. God has sovereignly broken in. And so now... They've got this how-to question, what to do? They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And you're inching towards verse 38. I checked this out on the internet. There was this elderly woman who had just returned from her home after a church service, and she was startled to find an intruder in her house, robbing, stealing her valuables. And so she shouted, stop, Acts 2.38. Well, evidently, the uh, burglar stopped dead in his tracks, and she calmly called the police, and the officer, upon arresting the man, said, what did you do? Why did you just stand there? All this lady did was yell scripture at you. She said, scripture? She said that she had an axe in 238s. <laughs> well, you're up to Acts 238. And Peter said to them, Repent. Be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, Repent. Now, this is an extraordinary word. It means literally in the Greek to change one's mind. Now, I want you to bear in mind that these are religious people. 
this is not some highly, ultimately corrupted culture. I mean, these people were on a religious pilgrimage to get to Jerusalem. They were thinking about God. This isn't Rome, this is Jerusalem. And yet, Peter, in the long line of individuals, uses that word, you need to have a change of course, a change of direction, a change of mind, you see, because you think that you are here to honor God on the basis of your works. Jesus went to that cross and was attested to with the supernatural elements of the sky darkening and that noon hour based upon his finished work it is by which you are saved. So now the question today is the same as the question then, whose work am I going to count on? Is it going to be on the basis of my sinful works, even though they're religious? where I try to ex gain a sense of acceptance from God or will be upon the exclusive finished work of Jesus Christ, the basis of which I am accepted before God. My sinful works or his sinless works, which shall it be? This is why they needed a change of mindset, a change of thought is the Greek word would have for us because their mindset entering into Jerusalem, it's my works. And now what God is saying through the apostle Peter is that you need a conversion. It's not your works. It's Christ's work. It's Christ's work alone. So again now, we're not dealing here with people who are non-religious at this point. They were extraordinarily religious. I remember back in New England, there was a great movement in the Holy Spirit, and people were coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior almost weekly, and I, I didn't give an invitation per se. They just start coming forward as soon as the uh, exposition ended, and so one of the individuals standing next to me who had been part of the founding of the church turned to me and said, how do we know whether or not this is authentic conversion? I said, time will tell whether it's conversion or over the course of time there will be a reversion where people will go back to their old ways of living. We will know then if this is a work of the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. If it's the human spirit, they're back to their works. If it's the Holy Spirit, it's based upon Christ, Christ's work alone. So repentance the changing of mind, the changing of direction, where we shift away from our works and we move in the direction and pivot and we turn and we focus upon the work of Jesus Christ and him and him alone. And then we are able to nod our heads when we ponder the significance of what the writer Mark had to say with regard to John, who was in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was the forerunner of Jesus. And then we would be told in that same chapter of Mark 1, then in verse 14, that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and, and, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he was saying this to religious Jews. So religious doesn't save you. One of the great challenges is religious unbelief. 
which leads us to the assumption that I'm simply acceptable before God because of how religious I am. He starts with these highly religious people. And so now in Acts chapter 2, you're in verse 38, and Peter said, repent, and then he adds a second word here that captures your attention as well. Be baptized, every one of you. Now, this is the water baptism that will illustrate the prior spirit baptism, the outward illustrating the inward, and you see the sequence of it all. And so now, with the outward as a leading indicator of the inward, we're able then to see that what God is doing is producing a dramatic change, and they're discovering salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, have you? James Simpson, 1847 of Edinburgh, he was the one that discovered chloroform as an anesthetic. Some have claimed that this was the most significant discoveries of modern medicine. In his latter years, Simpson was lecturing at Edinburgh University to medical students, and a student asked, what do you consider to be the most valuable discovery of your lifetime? And Sir James answered quickly, my most valuable discovery was when I discovered myself a sinner and that Jesus Christ was my Savior. So what we have to do when you bump into somebody who says, I'm, I'm basing my approach to God on my own goodness, get them to distinguish between what we will call sinful goodness and sinless goodness. The Apostle Paul said there's none good. And somebody would say, well, I, I'm better than Hitler was. The challenge is, is that they're thinking in terms of relative goodness rather than absolute goodness. What God is doing here is saying you need absolute goodness in order to be acceptable before God, but there was only one who is absolutely good. There are many who would probably argue I am relatively good in comparison to. But when we start comparing ourselves to God, then we have to deal with absolute goodness, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So now, what you and I see here is that there's these religious people who have gone a long ways to get to Jerusalem, to honor God. And yet, here's the one, these are the ones that, well, Peter is saying, repent. And then the expression that would be the baptism, the outward indicating the inward, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Notice then the exclusivity of that name. Now, later on, Peter is going to be standing out with all courage, and he's going to be stating it's going to get the, the religious authorities all upset. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. And he is absolute with that must as well. And then he goes on with these words, and you're back then to Acts chapter 2, and you are in verse 38 still. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he's speaking now historically at that point where there is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Notice that it's the promise. During the Welsh revival of 1904-1905, some women who were praying together said, we, we struggle.
struggled through the hours of the night, refusing to take a denial, had God not promised? Would he not fulfill? Our God is a covenant-keeping God. He must be true to his covenant engagements. Did he fail us? Never. Before the morning light broke, we saw the enemy retreating and our wonderful Savior taking the battlefield. We had a consciousness of God that created a confidence in our souls. Now, when you have a consciousness of God, even at work, it will give you such a confidence in your soul, no matter what it is that you're facing, no matter what it is you're experiencing. And so the promise is for you. It's for your children. He's talking to the Jewish population now that have converged upon Jerusalem from all different nations, you see. So when he says, and for all who are far off, you're going to be asking yourself the question, well, who is he talking about when he says all who are far off? Well, in Isaiah chapter 49, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord God called me from the womb and the body of my mother by be he named my name he's talking to the gentiles and later the apostle paul in the newer testament would say but now in christ jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of christ so pulling all this together then what he's saying is that this is both for jew and for gentile and so these people have heard now in their own dialects the gospel of jesus christ being presented to them when they th thought they were coming to jerusalem based upon their works and now they're re leaving th realizing that it's based upon christ's work they're going to take it all back to the various gentile nations and long before you see the church scattered because of persecution God was already working globally, getting people's attention about Jesus Christ. Now you're up to, now you're up to verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness. And what's interesting is about that word witness is that it comes from the Greek word martyros. We get the word martyr from. Man, I mean, you look very carefully at Peter in the book of Acts and you're pondering the dramatic transformation, this man who is lacking courage before a slave girl in the Gospels, and now here he is taking on the authorities with an exclusive claim about Jesus Christ on the streets of Jerusalem, and with many other words, he bore witness, he bore, in other words, that sense of I'm willing to be a martyr for this, this is how convinced I am of this, and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And you know what's interesting about that word crooked? It comes from the Greek word skolios, from which we get the medical word scoliosis. You see. Curvature, sideways curvature of the spine. And I remember studying that years ago, and prior to studying to be a pastor, I was heading in a different direction medically. And the signs and the symptoms of scoliosis, they can include the uneven shoulders, one shoulder blade that appears more prominent than the other, uneven waist, one hip higher than the other. 
And if a scoliosis curve gets worse, the spine will also begin to rotate or twist, adding to the curvature. Now, what fascinates me is that Luke is a physician. And as a physician, he's using a medical term to describe what is taking place in the culture. And he is speaking to religious people about the fact that there has been a curving, there's been a turning, there's been a twisting away from God due to the sin of humanity. So when he says, save yourselves now, what he wants them to do is to have their attention arrested by the fact that there is one who offers absolute goodness, who died in our place for our sins from the scoliosis of a generation. And so those who received his word, we are told, were baptized. This would have been extraordinary because prior to the New Testament times, it were Gentiles who were being baptized, being baptized into Judaistic ceremonies. But now we find 3,000 souls, and they are Jews. Do you realize the cultural break that's happening here? Can you imagine the dynamics in extended families? They're, in essence, going to get ostracized from parents, from cousins, from employers. You're breaking with tradition. You see, what's at stake here? Income can be lost. When you are no longer towing the line and doing what generations previously have, had been doing. But what God is doing is that he's seizing the attention of the people and through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the visual aspects of that, and now through this rush of the wind throughout Jerusalem, we see in verses 37 through 41 the first reflective point of this extraordinary, ultimate, historic revival. And you extrapolate from it regarding your own personal conversion to Jesus Christ. Are you dependent upon relative goodness? Or have you put your trust in the one who is absolute goodness? Are you putting your faith and trust in your works? Or are you putting your faith and trust in Christ's finished work? Is there curvature? Or is there something straight? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And once you and I embrace this, and we consider this powerful work of the Holy Spirit, and you're reflecting upon the conversion, your conversion to Jesus Christ, and we pray that you have, then you're ready for this second reflection point. As you move from our conversion to Christ in 37 through 41, to our continuance in Jesus Christ in 42 through 47. Now, once you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to be saying to yourself, okay, what should be my priorities? Now what do I do? This is all new to me. I was basing my efforts of pleasing God on my own religious goodness. Now I've moved from religious to relational, a relationship with God, from my sinful goodness to Jesus' sinless goodness. I'm moving from my works to Christ's finished work. This is a complete transformation, a complete conversion, you see, a reversal. And it was among religious people where this began. Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? 
you experienced the reversal. Because once there is conversion to Jesus Christ of 37 through 41, there has to be continuance in Jesus Christ in verse 42 through 47. And what I want to draw out for you now are four significant priorities that these people, and you and I likewise, need to be able to embrace as we continue in our relationship with Christ. <coughs> Notice that we are told here they devoted themselves. It carries with the sense of priorities. They weren't passive about this. They were proactive about it. They weren't as the whenever I feel like it approach to Christianity, but rather there is this inner conviction, this is a must-do. What's the first must-do? They've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they were saturating themselves with biblical truth. And as they saturated themselves with biblical truth, they were, in essence, allowing for themselves to be able to be invested in God's word. Colossians 3, verse 16 and 17, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know what the word dwell is in the Greek? Tabernacle. In other words, as in the Older Testament where people went to the tabernacle, now God has tabernacled in you and tabernacling in you through his word. Let the word of Christ tabernacle in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So now, the tabernacling has begun to take place. They're devoting themselves to this teaching. I remember back in Edmund Chapel at Wheaton where Dr. Howard Hendricks, professor of Christian education at Dallas Theological Seminary, was telling of a professor who had had an impact upon his life, and he passed his home a lot of times early in the morning and late at night and saw the professor pouring over his books. And so one day, Howard Hendricks asked his professor, Doctor, I'd like to know, what is it that keeps you studying God's Word? You never cease to stop learning. His answer? Howie. I would rather have my students drink from a running stream than from a stagnant pond. Is yours a running stream? Or is yours a stagnant pond? Day in, day out. From which do you draw your drink? This was their first priority, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. But then what's interesting is the next word, and the fellowship. Now, what captures our attention here is that, first of all, it says the fellowship. Fellowship, the Greek word, is koinonia. When a student is studying to become a pastor, he studies Koine Greek. Koine means common, commonplace. This was the language of the common people, commonality. 
Greek became the common language of the day. But what interests us is that koinonia, fellowship, means sharing something with someone. And it also involves sharing in something with someone. In other words, where there's fellowship, strong fellowship within the church, we are sharing with one another. But we share with one another because we share in Christ with one another. And what we have in terms of the ultimate share is Jesus Christ himself. We share with, but we share with because we share in Jesus with one another. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the koinonia, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then in 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship, koinonia with us. And indeed our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, now, God through Jesus Christ has allowed you to experience koinonia with the Godhead, the three in one. And just as Jesus experienced the extraordinary koinonia in a relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, can you experience in your own mind then the ultimate sense of disruption when Jesus on the cross would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, there's this break of koinonia that he'd experienced throughout all of eternity as the skies darkened upon that cross. The rupture of koinonia took place so that you and I could experience the relationship of koinonia with God. See what we're saying now? Fellowship. The connectedness. And then the next two, we'll just group them together. The breaking of bread, which pertains, you see, to communion, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. In World War I, in a British section of the Western Front, just a few miles from the front lines, there was, this, there was this hut called Talbot House. Talbot House. And it was a meeting place for men to go up to the trenches and men coming back. And in the loft above, they served communion there. It was kind of like their upper room. For some, it was literally their last supper. But what captures my attention is that over the door were found these words, quote, Abandon rank, all ye who enter here. Unquote. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ creates a level playing ground that the culture doesn't offer. No elitism at the cross of Jesus Christ. We've become aware of our if we think it's goodness, our sinful goodness. And what we need is sinless goodness. And that comes not on the basis of our works, but upon the basis of Christ and Christ's work alone. They have come to that conviction. And so you're up to verse 44. All who believed were together, had all things in common, all things in koinonia. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, which is kind of how our love and action ministry works. You saw the video clip a little bit earlier of Paul and Nancy Balky, and we we're thankful for the way in which 
Paul overseas. Love in action. Well, that's the idea here. They were distributing to people the proceeds, any that had need. But in this whole matter of priority, as you move from this teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer, you find now that in verse 46, there is such spiritual discipline, but it comes from within day by day. They just can't get enough. Can't get enough of God. Day by day, attending the temple together, they would have been at that port of the temp- point of the temple, Solomon's porch, and it would look out over the Mount of Olives, you see, where someday our Lord will return. It's not that distant from Solomon's porch. They're pondering the ascension of Jesus Christ from the Mount of Olives while they're involving themselves in the four significant priorities. And day by day, they just can't get enough of it. They keep coming back, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes and receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. And now what captures my attention is that word, that word generous there that's found in your in your Bible. It means literally from the Greek, free from rock. And you say, Gary, well, why? You see, Palestine, when you have that opportunity, I hope you do, to go and walk the terrain of Palestine, that is not smooth soil. I mean, you're going to turn an ankle as quick as they could, end up in some Jewish hospital. But the fact of the matter is here now, when you have this kind of heartfelt connection with God, he is creating such a smooth movement that now you see Luke the cardiologist at work where he said earlier on they were cut to the heart, pierced in their hearts. But now we find that they have smooth, generous hearts. Their hearts have been healed, which is what happens when you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. So what's the response? You're so thankful. Praising God. You're up to verse 47. Having favor with all the people, and now this dramatic vertical dimension of relationship with God is now having horizontal impact upon the culture. So what do we see here? Sovereign grace. The Lord added to their number. They didn't add to their number. The Lord added to their number day by day. Now notice in verse 46, they were prioritizing their days day by day. Now God is taking into account how to minister to them day by day. (coughs) And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. During a spiritual awakening, there is, first of all, an overwhelming awareness of the presence of God. You see in our insert today, Whitfield, the Wesleys, gathered together. About three in the morning, the power of God came mightily upon us, and as soon as we recovered, little from the awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty we broke out with one voice we praise thee O God we acknowledge thee to be Lord or in more contemporary words 
the lights in Hughes Auditorium still have not turned out. The writer goes on to say, some kneel to pray for a few minutes, then leave. Others just sit and stare. And if one looks closely, tears may be seen coursing down their cheeks. In some ways, it seems almost like a dream. Yet it happened. We saw it with our eyes. Impossible to describe. God was in our midst. And those who were there can never look upon things of this world the same way again. God in our midst. Let's stand together. This is our prayer. That there is such a significant sense of your presence that it governs each and every movement of this congregation in all the services. It governs each and every movement of us as individuals in both our gathered state when we're together like this on the Lord's Day and our scattered state when we're heading back out into our neighborhoods and off to work and off to school. But we need that sense of your presence, Father, the conversion and the continuance in Jesus Christ. May this church have a vital powerful impact for your glory as we present God to all who need to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And for this we give you the praise. In Jesus' name.